Last week, we, we talked about how um, God has called us to this place that often feels uncomfortable, that often feels like uh, both sides might be shooting at us if we don't join their bunker of hate. And the next two weeks, we want to look at some principles that sometimes seem like they're uh, opposed to each other. But when we look into the life of Jesus and others in the Bible, and hopefully we can see this in our own lives at some point, we see these two things that may seem like opposites, but actually Jesus holds them together. And today, we're going to talk about these two words, grace, you know, forgiveness, mercy, uh, not holding against someone what they deserve, grace. And then this other word, truth, this commitment to scripture that what God says matters, what God says counts. And so if you have your Bibles, turn to John chapter 8, and that's going to be our text for this morning. I want you to imagine that you've been caught in a sin, in a scandal, that you've been caught and maybe it's um, uh, stealing from your company. Maybe it's a marital affair. Maybe it's something that's going to ruin your life. It's going to bring you shame. I want you to think of the worst thing that you can even think of, of being caught. And then I want you to imagine, what would Jesus say to you in that moment? Because John 8 gives us a glimpse of what he might say to us. So before we get into the text, let me just set it up a little bit. First of all, I want to address this. I don't want to pretend like it's not there. Some of you, in your Bible, it says before this text, the earliest manuscripts, some of the earliest manuscripts don't have this text in them. And I, don't, I want to not like ignore that that's not there. It's, it's in some translations include that statement. And so when the... Uh, when the scribes and writers and others were copying the text, they didn't have a Xerox. It was people hand-copying it. And there's a few places in our Bible where it's a little confusing for them of saying, well, we're looking at all these ancient manuscripts, and the Bible has overwhelming amount of support. There's more literature and copies than any other literary uh, book that you can find anywhere in that time frame. So we feel really good about it. But then we hit a few of these sections, and you're like, what do we do with this? Because we see it in this manuscript, but we don't see it in this manuscript, so what do we do? And we could have a whole long discussion about that, and I would actually be glad to have that with any of you. I spent quite a bit of time uh, looking at this again, and if you want my two cents, I think that John, the apostle, wrote these words, and I think they got dropped out during a public reading where it wasn't translated that way and then not added back in. That's my guess. I could be wrong. What I do find when I look at scholars is almost all of them are pretty confident that this event actually happened. The bigger question is, did John actually intend for it to be in the Gospel of John? Uh, I would be more concerned if people were saying, like, well, I don't, even, I don't think this event ever happened. And I would be even more concerned if they said, I don't think it ever happened, and it totally changes my whole view about Jesus, because this does not change our view about Jesus at all. In fact, it just lines up with everything we know about him to be. And so I feel confident diving into John 8. Just wanted to be honest with you in case you see that in your Bibles. Let me give you the context here. Jesus is having all kinds of um, pushback, and that's maybe too light of a word. People are ready to kill him. He's had some disciples leave him. He's been threatened. And a lot of it started because he healed a lame man on the Sabbath. 
and they were saying, well, you're not supposed to do any work on the Sabbath, and Jesus saying, oh, come on. God wants us to love people. I loved this man. And, and, and so Jesus doesn't really want to have that with him, and he says, I'm going to do the right thing. And it's not always just cut and dry like you want it to be. And to be honest, you don't care that I worked on the Sabbath. You're just jealous, you're angry, you're power hungry, and you're after me. But Jesus says it in John chapter 7, verse 24, stop judging by mere appearances, but instead judge correctly. Ooh, that's a good one for us. How many times do we judge by our first impression, by how someone looks, how they talk? their education, they're part of town, they're part of the country, they're part of the world. We, we so often make snap judgments, and we think we know their intentions, and Jesus is like, whoa, just wait a second, hold on, judge correctly, get to know my intentions, get to know what I'm doing here. So that brings us to our text. I'm going to begin in John chapter 8, verse 2. At dawn he appeared again in the temple courts where all the people gathered around him, and he sat down to teach them. The teachers of the law and the Pharisees brought in a woman caught in adultery. They made her stand before the group and said to Jesus, Teacher, this woman was caught in the act of adultery. In the law, Moses commanded us to stone such a woman. Now, what do you say? They were using this question as a trap in order to have a basis for accusing him. So, they bring this woman caught in adultery, and my first question of the text is, where's the guy? I mean, we already realize something is up, something's a little fishy here. They didn't catch her in adultery by herself. They, they catch her, but they conveniently do nothing about the man, and they drag her, and Jesus realizes quickly, this actually has nothing to do with the woman. She's just the pawn in their game to try to accuse Jesus. They want to use her in this. And Jesus realized they're setting me up. They're going to force me into a bunker so that people will take aim at me. Because on one side is, they're thinking, if Jesus says, ah, your sin doesn't matter. It's no big deal. Adultery is no big deal. God doesn't really care about a sexual ethic at all. No worries. Leave her alone. Everybody get on with your day then they could accuse Jesus of not caring about truth. And a lot of people would have been really disappointed in Jesus for not caring anything about truth. On the other hand, they could have forced Jesus into saying, yeah, you're right. I condemn this woman. She deserves death. She deserves the worst we can bring. Hand me a stone and I'll join in. We'll all start killing her. And then people would have been like, well, Jesus doesn't even care about this woman at all. He only cares about truth, nothing else. And his version of truth seems to be pretty violent. And so it was a trick question, a trap question, one of those questions that nobody would want to answer. But if you were quick, you would end up in a lot of trouble. So what is Jesus going to do? Well, let's read on. But Jesus bent down and started to write on the ground with his finger. When they kept on questioning him, he straightened up and said to them, let, let any one of you who is without sin be the first to throw a stone at her. Again, he stooped down and wrote on the ground. At this, those who heard began to go away one at a time, the older ones first, 
until only Jesus was left with the woman still standing there. Jesus straightened up and asked her, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? No one, sir, she said. Then neither do I condemn you, Jesus declared. Go now and leave your life of sin. So they come to Jesus and they say, what do you think about this? And instead of answering quickly, he just gets down and starts scribbling in the dirt. Man, I wish we knew what he wrote. It's not going to be one of my first questions. You know, maybe day 1,000, I'll get to it. But I want to know what he wrote. And some people have said maybe he started writing the sins of the religious leaders who had brought this woman here. Maybe he started writing different things, you know, tax evasion, cheating on wife, lying to your brother, stealing land from the poor. Maybe he was writing those. Maybe he was writing their names. Some people have guessed he was just doodling to kind of show he wasn't really interested in them. (laughs) I don't know what he wrote, but he's just down here, and he finally kind of straightens himself and says, all right, who of you? is without sin. They were looking around. And they probably started to think about Deuteronomy 19 because the law is what they're relying on here. But the law in Deuteronomy 19 says that if a couple of witnesses uh, concoct a plan with malicious intent to get someone thrown in prison or even killed or fined, that the people who concocted the whole plan are, will be charged with whatever they were charging that person with. In other words, the law says we care about the heart of the person accusing. And so if you're found out to be with malicious intent and the only reason you raised this issue was because you have a vendetta against somebody somewhere, then you're the one who gets the brunt of the punishment. So maybe these guys are thinking about Deuteronomy 19 and they're start to drop the stones. It says the older ones first, I think because they were smarter, or maybe they knew the law a little more. And I imagine the younger ones were maybe a little more passionate. They were ready with their fastball. And, and have you ever just wanted to hurl something at someone? Some of you laughed really quickly. I'm, was it this morning? <laughs> My grandfather was a judge, and one day he um, came home from a long day, and there was a, was a big trial, and the uh, um, defendant had uh, been really, really out of line, um, not only because he had committed this crime, this terrible crime, but he was really arrogant in the courtroom, and my grandma asked my granddad what he thought about it, and he said, I'm going to throw the book at him. And my aunt, who was six or seven at the time, said, well, Dad, I've got an old record player you can have if you want. <laughs> you can throw that at him. Sometimes we've, you know, physically we want to throw something at someone. Even maybe more often than, not, than that, it's a word we want to throw at someone. It's, a, it's an argument. It's an insult. It's an offense. And it's like it's in our hand and we're like this. And we just think, oh, it feels so good to let it go. But the thing about letting it go is you can never get it back, can you? 
I remember packing an ice ball and throwing it at my brother, who was a long ways away from here to past that back wall. There's no way in the world I was going to hit him until it left my hand. And I know that you won't believe that I wasn't trying to hit him. It's just something guys do. We're like, we'll be cool if I got close. But as soon as it left my hand, I was like, oh, man, that's going right at his face. <laughs> and, and I was like, I want to grab it back. I want to hit like the abort button where it kind of blows up the missile in the sky. But it just went and just, just crushed his face. And the only good thing was that it, at least he had some ice on the wound. Um, <laughs> I remember his face was just immediately like all red just from that ice-packed snow. And sometimes we have a word, and we let it go, and we're just like, oh, I wish I could have that word back. I wish I could have that paragraph back, that conversation back. I wish I could grab it back because I saw how it wounded somebody. And I thought it was going to feel so good. And all it's left me doing is trying to clean up all of this collateral damage all around we're like, oh, what do I do now? So these guys drop the stones, and they just begin walking away. And I wonder if the woman in her entire life had ever experienced grace. I, I, I don't know what was happening in her life to make her be in an adulterous relationship. I, I don't know. But sometimes when we look at someone like that, we see a past riddled with stuff. It doesn't excuse anything. It just makes a little more sense of it sometimes. But I think that when we look at Jesus' interaction with her, we're just reminded of Jesus' interaction with lots of people. We see Jesus here showing gentleness and respect and honor and love and grace in this highly male-dominated society where women were often treated worse than the the family animals, not given much of a say, no say in the courtroom. And yet here's Jesus extending grace to her. And we're reminded of his gentleness with his mom at a wedding when they have a little wedding emergency crisis, and he takes care of it. We're reminded of his care and love for a Samaritan woman when he sat at the well next to her. And his disciples come and like, why are you sitting next to her? You're not supposed to be next to her. She's a Samaritan, and Jews don't sit with Samaritans, and she's a woman, and you're a man, and she's got this checkered past, and you're Jesus. What are you doing? And Jesus saying, exactly. I, I love all people. I care for all people. It reminds us of when he weeps with Mary and Martha when their brother had died. It reminds us of when he's hanging on the cross And he looks down to John. He's like, John, take care of my mom. It just reminds us of Jesus caring for people, often the people nobody else would ever care for. Forgiveness. On January 1st, 1929, it was the Rose Bowl. And it was California versus Georgia Tech. And Georgia Tech had a player named Stumpy Thomason. I'm not sure why he got the nickname, and I can't even quite picture it. But Stumpy had the football. It was one of those crazy plays where the ball gets fumbled and kind of kicked around. And there was a guy by the name on California of Regals. And Roy Regals was one of those big centers who played the line. He didn't get to touch the football very often. But the ball got fumbled, and he saw it. 
And Roy Regals snatched it, and he started running. 40, 50, crossed midway. 40, 30, 20, 10. He's looking at the end zone. And then something happens. His own teammates catch him because he's running the wrong way. (laughs) He's a big guy. They're jumping on him. Finally, he comes down at the one-yard line. So they're looking at like third and 83 or something. The coach doesn't have that one in his playbook. So they end, up, they end up punting from their own end zone, and the punt gets blocked, and they get a safety. California loses the Rose Bowl 8-7. to seven. Tough game for Roy. At halftime, he was so distraught. He was in tears, and he said, I'm not going back out there. And his teammates actually came to him and coach and everybody and said, Roy, we need you out there. Come back out there. And he actually went out and played a great second half, actually recovered a fumble and didn't even run the wrong way with it that time. Some of you have come this morning and your life is littered with mistakes. Sometimes they're not your mistakes. Sometimes you've needed to get to a safe place because you've been the victim of abuse And it's not your fault. And I'm thankful that you could find a safe place. When I talk about bunkers, I'm not saying that you shouldn't be in a safe place sometimes. Some of you, you know the hurt that you have was self-inflicted. You're thinking about relationships and decisions and things that you did. And when you ignored this person who needed your help. And when you weren't quite honest over here. When something came out in your words over here. And you have retreated to the locker room, and you're saying, I'm not even going to go back out. I'm done. And I want you to hear the words of your coach saying, it's all right. Get back in the game. I want you in the game. I want you on my team. I know you're not perfect. I know you've messed up. Jesus understands all of that. And yet Jesus comes and he says, who stands here to accuse you if I'm standing here with you? We're reminded of Romans 8 that says, if God is for you, who's against you? Who can condemn you? Who who can charge you? If Jesus stands right next to you with his arm around you, you don't have to worry about the accusations anymore, that you're not good enough, that you sin too, too much, that you've gone too far away from God. If Jesus is with you, who? Who's gonna be out there to condemn you, to stand against you? And maybe this morning you need to hear the words of Jesus saying, I want you in the game. I want you to serve. I want you to care for people. I want you to pray. I want you to read the Bible. And I know that you can feel failings in all of your life for all of those things. Get back in the game. Your life isn't over. God still cares for you. So oftentimes when we think about grace and truth, We have truth and we have grace and they seem like opposites to us. And and if we believe the lies of the enemy, we begin to think, God can't forgive me because I know what I said and I know what I did in that relationship and I know how I parented. I know what kind of a kid I was to my parents. And I 
I knew that person who needed help. I, I don't know why I didn't do anything. I know it was wrong. And we just load down our box with guilt and shame. And this morning, I want you to just see Jesus coming saying, you can't hold this anymore. It's too heavy, and you can't even dump it on your own. But Jesus comes and says, let me, let me take care of that for you. I've got you. I died for all of those things so that they can go away. I didn't die on a cross so that you would carry around your sin the rest of your life. I died on a cross so you could have freedom, so that you can understand my grace in your life, which then pours out of you and allows you to be gracious with other people. That's what Jesus has called to us. Grace, forgiveness. And the, the thing about Jesus is he holds both, grace and truth, and some of you, Maybe it's a truth problem. Maybe you have believed the enemy's lies and he's been loading you up with thoughts like your integrity doesn't really matter. God's word, ah, it's, it's irrelevant. It's just some old book. You don't need that. No, you're, you're a failure. You're nothing. And Satan says that. You're... A sexual ethic doesn't matter. Relationships and how we act in our relationships don't matter at all. Honoring your father and mother don't matter. Do your own thing. Loving your wife as Christ loved the church, ah, that's just something in an old book somewhere, one of Paul's letters. It doesn't matter. And we just fill up with lie after lie, it doesn't matter about your greed and your selfishness and your fear. None of that really matters because it's just trust me, the enemy says. Or trust yourself, the enemy says. And Jesus says, it's too heavy. If we load ourselves down with all of those lies, we can't carry truth around anymore. And Jesus says, come, let, let me take this. Just dump all of that out so you can... You can take grace and truth and you can hold them at the same time and you can refuse to drop either one that even when you're hanging on to truth, you're hanging on to grace and when you're hanging on to grace, you're hanging on to truth because did you get what happens here? The story isn't quite over that when Jesus says, hey, who stands here to condemn you? She says, no one, sir, feeling Jesus' full grace. And then Jesus doesn't just say, ah, get on out of here. Don't worry about it. Uh-uh. He says, go and leave your life of sin. Go and sin no more. Because Jesus isn't going to drop the truth just because he shows the grace. He holds both. And so many times in our culture, we get really obsessed about one or the other. And we drop one or the other. And Jesus approaches her with grace and he leaves her with truth. By the way, I think that's usually the right order of things. If you have somebody in your life that you feel like is way out of line, might I suggest you approach them with grace first and then with truth? Because if you approach somebody with grace first, they might actually listen to the truth. When we come barreling with only truth, 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 sometimes they get too far removed to hear the grace. But what, what, what I'm saying is, 
We commit to both because Jesus committed to both. This morning, we want to offer you Jesus' grace and Jesus' truth. We see him both on a cross where Jesus died for us because he loved you so much. He cared for you so much. And that is truth. It's, it's proven through history, through literature. Even more than that, it's proven through our lives that we know that God has forgiven us. And all we do is come and say, yes, Jesus, yes. And when someone is baptized, they go into the water and it represents dying to their old self, their sin. And when somebody comes up out of the water, Jesus says, I've taken all that sin and I've thrown it away. And if anybody, even today, would like to talk about what it means to follow Jesus or to be baptized and to give your life to Jesus, we would love to do that with you. There'd be some folks that would be in the front rows that would be glad to pray with you even during this next song. If you'd be so bold as to come up here or if you want to mark your Connect card that you want to study and pray with somebody, this week we'd be glad to do that as well and get with you privately and study and, and look at what the scripture has to say. But I know that Jesus is good, He's surprisingly good to us. Would you stand? Let me pray with us. God, just when we were sure you were going to come at us with a fist, with revenge, with everything we deserved, you come and you put your arms around us and you say, if I'm with you, who's against you? And I'm standing right here next to you. And so for anybody who's in this room who's never just sensed you standing right with them, I pray today would be the day because the truth is you have always been calling to them their entire lives. And I pray today would be the day that they would say yes to follow you, to, a, to say, yes, Jesus, I need you to take my sins. Yes, I, I need you to help me walk in truth. And I pray that, that their eternity could be changed even in these moments. It's in Jesus' name we pray.